My heart's already full, and let me explain why, and uh, this will be a good interlude for us, I think. I've been preaching at Missouri Baptist all week, uh, doing their student renewal, and uh, in fact, uh, got done today at 2.30 this afternoon. It's been pretty incredible. Uh, God has done some powerful, powerful things uh, in these last couple days, but it's amazing to me, like as much as I enjoy uh, preaching God's Word outside of this context, um, it makes me continually realize how much I love you, how much I long to be here with you, how much I love this family and this group of people. And uh, so I want to encourage you with, uh, my heart is already filled with having seen God move and do uh, tremendous things. And I think tonight um, has great potential to do that same thing. And so if you're uh, here for the first time, welcome uh, to Matthias's lot. Our mission motto, vision, is loving him and loving his. We really believe that when Jesus said to love God and to love people, and that that was the greatest commandment, that we should probably adhere to that. Amen? Now, um, I want to start out with a quick note, and then we have much work to do and so little time to do it in. Uh, We're trained to be pragmatic. In other words, um, many of you, you you come into church gatherings like this, uh, church service, and we're just, we want like the the list of to-dos. All right, Mark, like, okay, the scripture, the text is great, but just tell me what I need to do with that. Uh, Tell me what what, what that means for me. Uh, Give me the to-dos and the not-to-dos, and I'll write those in my notepad creatively with a few doodles around it, and we'll all go home happy. Uh, The difficulty in teaching the New Testament, and those of you that are so wired for for pragmatics, is, is if we just stick in teaching the Old Testament, teaching the Word, and not extrapolating our own thoughts, then we must get wrapped in the beauty of the story, Practical things, pragmatic things will come from the text, but, but it's not like these teachings in Daniel are just to instantly get for our application. Do you understand? In teaching the Old Testament, it's more about seeing the character of God, being marveled at that, and seeing how the beautiful story of God is playing out all throughout the scriptures. Are, are we together? And so I want to encourage you, as we're journeying through Daniel There will be practical application, there will be take-home for us, there will be things that we leave here challenged with, but it's more just about sitting back and seeing the beauty of God's story, amen? And trust me, tonight the story gets so much more beautiful. But let's begin with a a short recap, shall we? Babylonian Empire slide, please. Now, uh, last week we learned that Daniel is uh, written in 605, or at least our characters, uh, uh, rather, appear in 605 uh, BC. That's before Jesus comes, so somewhat 600 years around that time. And this is a significant year, because there is massive world empire shiftings that are happening. The Babylonians have uh, overtaken Assyria all the way back to Carchemish, which is, uh, you can see it right ahead of, uh, right above Syria there. They pushed them back, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar's father has gotten very ill. And so he hands the reins to King Nebi, and he says, all right, son, now you shall destroy and conquer. And destroy and conquer he does. He chases the Assyrians uh, to the famous battle of Carchemish, and the Assyrians are there. And interestingly enough, as they're there, uh, the Egyptians, um, Pharaoh Necho, hears that there's a battle ensuing, and he wants a peace. And so he and his empire from Egypt, you can see, come up from the south, And just when uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar wipes out the Assyrians, as I said last week, he turns to his left and there is the Egyptian empire. Bad move on their part. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar wipes them out as well, literally ending two world empires in one fail swoop. And then Nebuchadnezzar turns south. And what is south? It is Jerusalem. Now the uh, northern kingdom, which had been divided after the death of Solomon, has already uh, been in the hands of the Assyrians, now in the hands of the Babylonians. But The southern kingdom, Judah, has been protected. 
though sinful and though already alluded to in the Old Testament, that it would one day fall. He heads there to Jerusalem in 605. And he comes in as Jehoiakim is leading this nation, this area, and uh, he begins to do uh, interesting things to it. We learned last week that one of the things he does is he, he comes in the temple, on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and he takes some of the vessels, some of the gold and silver, some of the things that are precious to the Jews, and he takes them back out of his, out of their temple rather, and into his, the temple of his God. Well, who is his God? We learned last week, and maybe you looked it up on YouTube and are deathly afraid now of the uh, British uh, satanic worship band Marduk, right? I shouldn't say satanic worship band, but satanic band Marduk, right? The god is named Marduk. Um, Creation story of a Babylonian goes that he wipes out uh, Tiamat, blows her up like a balloon, shoots an arrow through her heart, and with her two bleeding pieces, right? Some people say the scripture has no drama. I beg to differ, right? Like with her two bleeding pieces, he then creates... Uh, the heavens and the earth. And uh, so it makes Marduk the ruler of Babylon and the god of Babylon. So that's who Nebuchadnezzar worships. So all of that is our context, okay? We hardly met any characters last week. Uh, we didn't meet the, ca- the character that is entitled, that this book's entitled after. All we know is that 605, Nebuchadnezzar comes into Jerusalem and he's beginning to de- uh, desire a military overthrow. Are we good? That's the recap. Now I need you to open your Bibles. The page number is on the screen to Daniel chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 3. As you're uh, turning, a couple other fun facts that are free of charge. Um, How many of you guys have ever heard of Saddam Hussein? Anyone ever hear of Saddam? Okay, all of you. The rest of you live in a cave, as did Saddam for a while, but uh, that's neither here nor there. Um, Saddam Hussein, uh, interestingly enough, uh, was the ruler of Iraq. And uh, Iraq is the modern-day Babylon. This is what we're talking about. This is the area of the world. Babylon, again, always associated with sin and uh, wretchedness. Saddam Hussein literally believed that he was the reincarnated Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, this is proven by the fact that in the early 80s, 1980s, any 80s babies here, right? I was born 1980, all right? Just me and the three of you, good. Um, but he built a palace, 60 million bricks big, and on every brick was engraved both his name and King Nebuchadnezzar's. He really believed that in building this ancient palace that he was proving the fact that he was the reincarnated Nebuchadnezzar. And so this area of Babylon has always had this huge tension, but it's just interesting to note that uh, Saddam believed he was Nebi. Now verse 3, and we'll get going here tonight. We're going to take this one verse at a time. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people to Israel, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. Um, now, much to explain here. So uh, what happens is, is Nebuchadnezzar comes into Jerusalem. Remember I told you that his father was ill. Well, as he's coming into Jerusalem, uh, he gets word that his father is dying. And so Nebuchadnezzar, we're not sure what his strategy would have been. We don't know. Maybe the same, maybe different. But he gets word that his daddy's dying. And so Nebuchadnezzar leaves he heads back home to be with his ailing father. And what he leaves behind, as Scripture says, his chief eunuch. Interesting phrasing. Now, th- this isn't necessarily physical, okay? Uh, in fact, as, as it's found, oftentimes eunuchs in the Scriptures or in ancient Mesopotamian times were ahead of the harems of the king. And so the, the physical unification, I guess you would say, uh, was necessary. 
But by this time in the scripture, a eunuch could just be the king's essentially right-hand man. And I think it's probable that this is the case in Ashpenaz's uh, example. So he leaves. And he leaves uh, Ashpenaz with the charge. Listen, I I need you to find me some of these Jews of, of what descent? Of noble and royal descent. Now, by all estimations... This is only 75 people big, okay? Probably 75 to 100. So I know like we think of like military overthrow, that this is just massive. No, probably 75 to 100 people that Ashpenaz is charged with pulling out of Jerusalem and deporting to Babylon. In a 597, they come back and take 10,000 or so, and in 586, they destroy the temple. This is the first of the three entrances into Jerusalem. But this is the plan. Ashpenaz, sit back, take these folks out of Jerusalem, and push them forward. Now, the big question is, why would you do this? Why only 75? There's been some other dictators in the world that have desired a world empire, and uh, they have just accomplished that by mass murder, or at least perceived to accomplish it, right? Hitler, namely. Right, he comes in, he thinks that the best way to world overthrow, to, de- to de- develop a world empire, is to come in and mass murder. So why is Nebuchadnezzar's plan, come in, I, I desire a world empire, and I'm only going to take 75? Why? He realizes this. If he really wants world empire, world power, world overthrow, then he understands that you have to take a culture, and if you can figure out a way to morph it into your own, to all of a sudden marry like these two cultures, and, and you don't even see the lines anymore, uh, then all of a sudden you have an empire, right? It shows not just his arrogance or his spiritual ignorance like we talked about last week, but it shows his, uh, his intelligence, okay? Nebuchadnezzar is like, he is no, like, unwise king. He's a very wise king, and also he's very committed. This plan is going to take time. Like, it would be much easier, it, it would appear, just to come in, wipe everyone out, destroy the temple, Babylon conquers. Instead, give me 75, let's take them, and let's begin to develop them. Uh, and to begin, it's going to start with 75 uh, Jews. Um, now, I need to say something here about these 75. The whole plan with these 75 that Ashpenaz is going to choose, the whole plan is to brainwash. The whole plan is to take these folks, to deport them out, and to brainwash. Now, when I was growing up, what I never got about the felt boards, the pictures of Daniel that I saw on VeggieTales or on, you know, weird children cartoons that tried to display the story, these kids were kidnapped. Like, these are real, 14 to 17-year-olds, no older than 14, no, no younger than 14, rather, no older than 17. They're teenagers, they're kids. Picture yourself in that age. They're literally kidnapped, taken out of their, nor, out of their noble royal family, taken out of it, and, and put somewhere else. We will not get this story until we start getting these pieces, these realities, these kids are kidnapped, taken out of their families. Picture you yourself as a parent of one of these. King comes in, says, I'm going to conquer the world. I'm taking your son with me back here. Imagine the turmoil and the chaos left behind. These are real people. This is a real story. This is not folklore or fable. Are we together in this? I need us to understand this 
Because at least for me, growing up in the church, like the story of Daniel was just like, it's a, it's a small world after all, and the music's playing, and Daniel, and it's all the, just the lion's den. It's, it's so much more than that. So Ashpenaz says, all right, I need 75. And uh, they weren't just noble or royal. They had specific things that they were looking for. Let's look at verse 4. Uh, there to be youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. Okay? Uh, so they're not just to be of uh, noble or royal families, or uh, back, uh, backdrops, or um, bringing up, rather. They're, uh, they're to have perfect physical without blemish conditions. Um, they're to already be knowledgeable. These are already skilled 14 to 17-year-olds. Could you imagine this process, right? You picture like some lineup, right? And Ashpenaz is sitting back there like, no, yeah, mm, there's a nice one right there, right? We'll take him and hit, yes as well. Like it, just an, an interesting process to begin to imagine this. But why? Why take the most beautiful or the most handsome or whatever it is that you want to call dudes that are cute or whatever, right? Like, why, why take these folks and then why take the most knowledgeable? If you're going to brainwash them anyway, why do this, Nebuchadnezzar? The power of beauty and the power of knowledge. Let me explain. I was at Quick Trip uh, a couple days ago. Any Quick Trip fans, right? Talk about all the time. The chocolate long johns are like little nuggets from heaven. And I'm at a Quick Trip and uh, it's early in the morning, and they're power washing. You guys like power washers? I, sh- I sure do, right? The, there's that, that combination of power and wash is just a great combo. And the guy's out there, the employee's out there, and he's power washing the concrete. It seems like a productive way to spend your time, but he's, he's power washing the concrete. And, uh, and I get out of my car, and this is always so interesting to me. I get out of my car, and there's a young, uh, young lady that walked out of the store. And this dude is standing on the sidewalk, employee of Quick Trip, won't mention his name, Aaron, and he... he <laughs> He's holding his power washer, and this girl walks by. And I mean, this dude, like, isn't it hilarious to watch dudes, like, when they see, right? This dude, I mean, just follows her. But, but he's not just following, like, he is, li- like, she's only three foot away, and I'm just watching this whole thing. I, and, he's, and his power washer is going, and literally, this happened pretty soon. His power washer is up on somebody's car. No, no joke. I'm sitting there just watching back. Finally, the woman rolls down her, you're power washing my car! She said, and he's like, oh, oh, you know, he like tried to like, you know, he like act like he tripped or something, right? But it's literally this happened. Unbelievable start to my day. The the power of beauty. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Uh, Especially for guys um, and and females in their own right. Uh, Beauty just entices the eye so quickly. It just grabs us and it holds our attention. That's why in... in, uh, some would say good marketing campaigns. When I went to, uh, to New, York, New York City, sitting in Times Square, and I've talked about this before, the huge uh, American Idol display, or American uh, Eagle, rather, display, it, it features like, you know, they don't, they don't put Dorcas up there, you know, whatever, whoever Dorcas is. I mean, it's, it's like the most beautiful people they could find wearing their clothing. And their hope is that as you're, like, walking down Times Square, all of a sudden you look up, and with the corner of your eye, you see, oh, those those people are beautiful, and you're drawn to that. And you're like, I wonder what I would look like in that clothing, hence going to in the store and then buying credit card, right? Swipe. Like, beauty grabs us and is incredibly powerful. I would say the same about knowledge. Um, have, when was the last time you just sat and you just, you heard or you learned something and you felt powerful, right? 
like whatever it was, it was, it was like new, fresh information, and you couldn't wait to share it. Just, and, and so it just, it just came off your tongue. He takes the most beautiful people and some of the most knowledge, 14 to 17-year-olds, because of the power of beauty and the power of knowledge. Now, I need you to see this distinction. This is Nebuchadnezzar's plan. Most pretty, most powerful, most beautiful, most knowledgeable. Can I share a piece of scripture, if I may, at this point in time? Is that cool with you guys? Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, scripture says this. Don't turn there, just listen. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is the difference between our God and Nebuchadnezzar. Our God says, I'm going to choose the lowly, the unwise, the unbeautiful, and I am going to empower them, give them might, and I am going to show my strength in them so that no man may boast, and it will bring all glory to me. Nebuchadnezzar says, I want to surround myself with the most beautiful, the most knowledgeable people, because then as a king, I'm seen as pretty great. And the scripture says they were to be chosen in such a way that when they were brought in the king's court, and they stood before the king, that they, that they looked like they fit in. Okay, now I'm, I'm, just, I'm with King Nebuchadnezzar. Exactly, you look exactly like him. Do you guys get this? A profound difference that we need to see between our God and Babylon is we serve a God that takes the low and exalts them, and Nebuchadnezzar wants to take the exalted and exalt them further in himself. Are we together? Now, they're not just to be these things. There is a plan, a strategy of brainwashing, if you will. Four things. The first is, we've already seen it, separation. I'm going to take these people, I'm going to deport them from their families, their culture, all of their, all their, their parents, their friends, the ways that they worship. I'm just going to take them out of all of this life, and I'm going to put them in a new life. First strategy of brainwashing from Nebuchadnezzar, separation, separate. You're no longer here to be influenced by these people and this God and these things, now we're going to bring you over here. And at the end of verse 4, we see strategy number dos for the bilingual here. Um, strategy number dos is seen at the end here of verse uh, 4. Uh, the user were to be without blemish, we've already talked about that, incompetent to stand in the king's palace, look here in the middle of verse 4, and to teach them what? The literature and language of the Chaldeans. Interesting. Check this out. So the Chaldeans uh, are what the dynasty of the Babylonians were called by historians. So the Babylonian dynasty, Chaldean dynasty, one and the same. So strategy number two is re-education. Okay? First thing, we're going to separate them. Second thing we're going to do is we're going to re-educate them in the history, the knowledge of the Chaldeans. Well, there's some issues with that kind of wisdom. The Chaldeans were masters of sorcery and magic and loved omens, and um, loved enchantments. Um, they, were just, they, were just, they were huge magicians. In fact, all of the wisdom and knowledge and literature that was going to be ingrained in Daniel and his friends here was all to do with like this weird magic sorcery piece. Now, uh, the other thing that they were uh, fond of was glass making, which I don't see any resemblance, but that's true, all right? 
So they like magic, sorcery, and glass making, right? Like I don't go go to it, right? So Daniel was gonna be trained in all these things. Pretty brilliant. The interesting thing though is that three or four places in Scripture uh, we see where the adulteress is connected with magic. In fact, oftentimes in uh, Scripture. Magic is associated with the death penalty. Those who are fondling and messing around with magic and sorcery and witchcraft uh, were sentenced to death because it was messing around in things that people did not understand and things that ultimately were not of God. And so the Babylonians were going to re-educate these Jews in magic and sorcery and omens, enchantments. This is dicey stuff, right? But they're not done. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says this. The king uh, assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the what? Before the king. So check this out. Separate, re-educate, and this is one of the most brilliant tactics that Nebuchadnezzar could have ever done. Obligate. What do you mean by that? He's developing in them an obligation to himself. They take these people. Would you think that slaves who are kidnapped would be eating off the king's table, right? Like, we're not talking Little Caesars here. We're talking Papa John's. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we're, we're talking about a massive upgrade here, right? We're not talking pork steaks. We're talking legitimate steaks, right? Like, they're, they're eating off the king's table, drinking his wine. For what end and, to, and for what purpose? Eventually? Some of these Jews start thinking, we were of noble uh, descent over here. Over here, much better, right? Like we get the world empire's wine, the world empire's food, and what does it do over time? What does it do? It creates in them a sense of he's protecting us. So when the 10,000 Jews get deported and come over, I keep like going from this side to this side. I'm sorry about that, right? But when they take these Jews and they bring them over, what starts happening? Is now these people who feel obligated to Nebuchadnezzar, they start saying, like, it's not so bad over here. In fact, you should, you should hear this. Like, we got hooked up with the king's food, and the king's all, it was pretty unbelievable. And so the whole plan is that these people start being ingrained with the culture of Babylon, that when these other Jews come over, they're the defenders, and they're the most beautiful and the most knowledgeable, the influencers. Such a brilliant strategy if God wasn't involved, Right? Like, and that's the drama of the whole story. Like the strategy seems really, really, really articulate, really ornate. Take 75, begin to indoctrinate them, right? Separate them, all these things. But there's some problems. And we begin to see that in verse 6. Among these were, what's the word there? Daniel, here he is, right? We meet some characters. Finally, you're like, enough history, like show me the characters, right? And so here we are. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. So we meet our four good friends that we're going to get to know much about. And here we get an indicator of something else that we didn't know before. It's not just that these four are of the nation Judah, which again is in the divided kingdom, the northern and southern. In the southern half, there were two tribes that made up the, the, the nation of Judah. There was Benjamin and Judah. And so all four of these brothers, they're not brothers, but all four of these men are from the tribe of Judah. And something interesting happens here in verse 7. And the chief of the eunuchs, Aspenaz, gave them names. Daniel he called Peltishazar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. 
Mishael, he called Meshach, and Azariah, he called Abednego. If you grew up in the church at all, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was like one of your favorite things to say, right? It was like onomatopoeia. I mean, it just, it just, it rolled off the tongue. You're like, these were your three great characters. But friends, there is something so deep happening here. Next slide. Um, I want to show you something. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael. No, not yet. Not yet. Go back, bro. Come on. Unbelievable. Um, Mishael and Azariah, all four of these names end in what? El, Aya, El, and Aya. Well, what's interesting to note is the El uh, comes from the, the God, the Hebrew term Elohim. And so uh, Daniel and Mishael have names that are attributed to the the Hebrew God, Yahweh. And the Aya on both Hananiah and Azariah are from another term for God. And so all four of these men had names when they were in Jerusalem that represented the God that they served. More specifically, the slide you've already seen, next slide. Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means, next slide, the Lord is gracious. Next slide, Mishael means, who is like the Lord? And Azariah means, the Lord is my helper. Now, interesting to note, different from you and I. In ancient Near East times, names mean a whole lot. And so when these guys get deported, and they get taken over here, the last strategy is confusion. Okay? Separate, re-educate begin to just indoctrinate and mess these guys, and now confuse. We're going to take their names, and we're going to give them different names, so that every day in these, this three-year of training that they're called by something, they're forgetting who they once were and beginning to believe that they're something else. This is legitimate brainwashing. And so for Daniel, Daniel kind of got the raw end of the deal here, uh, just in general. He gets the name that no one can pronounce. Uh, Belteshazzar is the literal pronunciation And it means protect the king. Now, hold on a second. The first three words are what? Are Bel. I told you last week that Marduk has 50 names. One of those names is Bel. So the interesting thing to note is they don't just change Daniel's name to uh, Mike, okay? Uh, they, They change it to bear the name of Marduk, their God. So interesting, but he's not done. Hananiah uh, ch- uh, which has changed to Shadrach, means the command of a coup. Um, a little bit more creative here. A coup is another term for Marduk, and it's one of the lower gods underneath Marduk's reign. So again, the name is attached to the god. Mishael is uh, changed to um, Meshach, and it means who is what a coup is. So again, this taking on of something else. And Azariah is changed to Abednego, I think he got the best end of the deal, at least it sounds the best, and his is servant of Nabu. Now, Nabu was the god of vegetation, again, one of the lower gods of, um, of Marduk. Crazy. I'm going to deport you. I'm going to completely re-educate you. I'm going to obligate you to myself as king. And then I'm going to completely wipe your identity off the face of the planet. And then what's going to happen is a bunch of people are going to come over and because of my brilliance as King Nebuchadnezzar, you're just going to bring all of these Jews into Babylonian culture and Babylon, Babylon will rule forever. This is the tension. What will the boys do? 
right? 75. I never knew that before. 75. We're talking about four. Four of the 75, names changed, all the potential to be obligated to Nebuchadnezzar, all the re-education, all the separation. The question will be, what will the boys do? How will they respond to these demands? What will there be contention? What will their hearts say? Who will they stand for? This is the tension of Daniel. And all under legitimate kidnapping and militant overthrow. Now, 2,600 years later, the same enemy, but strategy manifested in a different way. Next slide. Separate, re-educate, obligate, and confuse. 2,600 years later, I look out at a culture that is dealing with the exact same four things. The enemy is like, if I can just separate the Christians, the believers, from their strong network of relationships... If I can get them out of that accountability, out of that structure. If I can confuse some people in thinking that the church is bunk and they don't need it. If I can, get, if I can isolate them, if I can get them on an island, then they'll find themselves lonely and seeking inwardly for help and joy and, and, and pursuit instead of in God who they claim as their father. If I can begin to re-educate them, if I can brainwash them, if I can feed some heresy, some, uh, some, some prosperity gospel, if I can give them some things that will twist the gospel, take this beautiful Christ-resurrected gospel and morph it and shift it and make it about you and your pursuit of holiness and how you can do that with your deeds and nothing to do with Christ, then there will be some brainwashing that will occur if I can just obligate them to one another if I can make them feel obligated to each other. Like everything that I have to do is just to make everyone happy and appease, and appease everyone. So out of obligation, I'm just I'm making all of you think that I've got it all together and that I'm knowledgeable about the scriptures. The enemy, if I can just obligate. And then finally, if I can confuse them of their identity if I can take this idea that they're sons and daughters of God, and if I can morph that understanding, if I can make them believe that they're really unchanged, that they don't have a new identity, that the sin that they're struggling with is still dominant, that this whole thing about being a new creation in Christ, that means nothing. If I can just get them brainwashed to believe these four things from the culture then maybe they'll claim Christianity out of their mouths, but their lives will not represent it. Do you see it? 2,600 years later, and the same strategy from the same enemy manifested in a different way, all leading to numbness. Have you ever been numb before? Right? Okay. Um, Have you ever uh, had a limb that's fallen asleep? Right? Um, I've had to go into uh, uh, certain surgeries where um, like a whole a limb will, will, will be completely numb or the best part is when you go to the dentist and they numb you, you know, like you can't talk at all and you're like slobbering all over yourself, right? But the whole premise of being numb is what? You, you can't feel. 
you become completely desensitized. Your senses no longer work, and it's numb, and so the doctor can go in and morph and change. The plan of Nebuchadnezzar, if I can make these 75 Jews numb to who they were, then maybe, then maybe an entire culture can be succumbed by Babylon. If I can just get them numb, if I can desensitize them enough so that when these friends come over, they're like, Babylon's not so bad. In fact, when we were in Jerusalem, it was pretty nasty. And over here, it's brilliant. Then he's won. Now, I want to ask you guys um, five things. Five very specific questions. And I sit here because I want to take these in. I sit here because I want to ask you, is it possible that you've become numb? That you've become desensitized? Is it possible that you've been brainwashed? Is it possible that the culture has infiltrated your life so much that there's no noticeable difference between you and, in this case, the Babylonians? So five things. The first is this. If the small beauties in life, the smiles of children, the formation of the clouds like they were last night, if these small beauties, the, the high of a friend, the conversation of good relationship, if those small beauties don't give you joy anymore, then there's a great chance that, you've, that you're numb, that you become desensitized. If you're no longer seeing these beautiful moments, then you're just a puppet. And that was Nebuchadnezzar's plan. No more beauty, now you're my beauty. If, uh, if you can listen to any radio station and it be positive or negative, but it have no effect on you, any beat, any song, any lyric, it doesn't matter. It just sits and plays. And then you're numb. You're desensitized. Your spirit's no longer provoked by idolatry. It's just another song, right? It's just another thing. If your concept of strong interpersonal relationships is all through social networking, all through the mediums that have become so accessible. In uh, September of 2008, there were 22 uh, billion um, hours spent on the internet. And one year later, in September of 2009, 27 billion hours a month on the internet. 1.4 billion of those hours are spent on Facebook in America. 22.1 million people access the internet from their phones every day. We've become numb to real relationship because all of our relationship can happen outside of looking people in the face and talking to people, saying I love you, saying how are you. It can all happen through text or email or Facebook, Twitter. That's you. If ultimately you're more comfortable in those mediums than just by talking to folks and looking them in the eye, I would say you are numb, desensitized, brainwashed, believing a lie. If um, television 
can say, and you guys know this, have you ever just sat and been watching TV and then like after five minutes you like wake up with like a turtle head as my wife calls it, right? You're like sticking out because you're, you're you're, you don't know what's happening. You're just watching the images go by. If you were to think about the quality of the television that you watch, I would imagine that many of you in that realization would realize that you're numb. That you're completely desensitized. You can watch anything at any given point and it doesn't matter. Lastly, if you can sit in a conversation, any conversation, and listen to people being bashed, and listen as people badmouth and talk horribly about others, if you can sit in those conversations, spirit unprovoked, and just take it, making no stand, making no attempt to end the conversation, friends, you are at that point rendered numb, desensitized, brainwashed. So, so the question for us is, is, is so what? So what do we do? Come on, we're all there somewhere, right? Like we all have some numbness, some piece that culture has just worn off to the, to the point where we just don't see it anymore. We've gotten so used to it that we don't, we don't even notice it. We could be watching something completely pornographic on channel five and we don't even turn the channel, even when there's kids in the room. We're so used to culture, so desensitized, so numb. What do we do? The church had these two words that they would say at moments like this. Wake up. Wake up. Open your eyes. Open your hearts. Wake up. Become sensitive again. Let your spirit be provoked again. Let the idolatry of this culture cause tension in your heart again. Though you came in here numb, you can leave aware. And it's probably best summed up in 1 Corinthians 15. Look at this. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right. And do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. But you have that knowledge. You have it. The knowledge of the great king of the universe. Wake up church. This was the point for Daniel and his friends that a decision had to be made. Will we be brainwashed? Will we succumb? Will we give in? Will we compromise? Will we be re-educated? Will we be obligated to a man-king? Or will we wake up alert, aware, and ready to worship the one true God? You, me, tonight, we wake up. Whatever it is for you, in whatever area of numbness, desensitivity, now we awake. Let's stand together. Let's stand together. I was reading Psalm 34 a couple days ago. And uh, the scripture says this. The scripture says that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. What a promise. That he's near to the broken. 
later in the scripture says, to the crushed in spirit he will save. I just want to pray for a spirit of brokenness on this room. A spirit where your sin affects you. Where it causes in you an angst and a desire to repent, to turn from it and to turn to Christ. So wherever you're at right now in your own way and whatever as we were going through that you feel like you're numb to, I just want you to begin to pray for God to awaken your soul. And let's just cover this room right now in prayer. And here in a few minutes, I'll close us. Come on, church. Let's just pray to be awakened. Just cry out.